When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it felt right. I felt it was right. I was so And I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. In honor of the start of Black History Month, the theme of today's episode is representation. In this week's episode, both of our storytellers examine the importance of diversity and representation in science, and not just in their research sample. Our first story is from Latasha Wright. It was recorded last October at QED. The theme that night was translation. So, I'm a cisgendered African-American woman with a PhD in cellular and molecular biology, and I'm academia adjacent. Um, Because of these things, I'm always asked to serve on these diversity panels, and they're all aptly named women in science. (laughs) And I always get asked the question, does representation matter? So I was born in rural Mississippi um, in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, I'm the youngest of five children. Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad was a longshoreman, and none of them went to college, neither one went to college, but they really instilled in me the importance of education. My mom would always say, get your education, because can't nobody take that away from you. And my dad would say, when I came home from school, did you learn something new today? And I would be like a smart, ask and be like, yeah, I learned stuff new, but I'm not sure you understand. (laughs) And he would be like, oh, okay, tell me about it. Then I would be amazed at how much my dad knew because he was a ferocious reader. And then we would have these big discussions about what I learned in school. Um, And You know, I was, as you can tell by that little smart little bit of snippet, I was kind of a precocious kid. I liked to run around a lot. I liked to laugh. I was kind of annoying because I asked why, like, all the time. And I really breezed through elementary school. There's no, you know, I did a little, got paddled maybe once or twice, but mostly I kind of breezed through. But when I started middle school, 
everything changed. That was when I was first noticed by the teachers as being smart. And then I had all of these teachers debating in front of me, like, is she really smart? Is she kind of smart or really smart? <laughs> and I was, I just didn't know what to think of that. And one particular instant really sticks out in my mind. When I went into science class, my name was in big letters on the board. And another woman's name, Trisha Wages, was also in big letters on the board. And her GPA, down to three decimal points, was written beside our names. And underneath, in this rainbow chalk, the question, who would end up on top? <laughs> and then students and teachers started betting, and they started this whole like external rivalry that me and Trisha had no idea. We had no inputs on. <laughs> and it was just outside of their perception that the black kid could be the highest achiever. And it just became this cloud that surrounded both of us all the way up until we graduated high school. So, I don't know, does representation matter? So, I have this cousin. Her name is Lula Bell, but we call her Cookie. Because, um, you know, in Mississippi, everybody has a nickname. And she was smart, too. But she lived in Alabama. And she was four years older than me. And my dad was kind of competitive with his brother. Um, and she graduated valedictorian of her high school. So my dad would come to me every now and then, just kind of lean in and be like, you know, baby doll, Cookie graduated valedictorian. <laughs> and walk away. It's like, got it, got it. So I graduated valedictorian of Anthony <laughs> High School. I was the first black valedictorian to graduate from Van Cleef High School in 86 years. So does representation matter? I don't know. So after high school, I went to college. I went to Tougaloo College, which is a historic black college and university in Mississippi and I was surrounded by black people and black excellence, and this was my first time. And I was a little bit nervous, but I was just impressed to go here because it was a great school. Um, I majored in chemistry, and at the time, none of my professors, none of my science professors were African-American. And at this time, 50%, 50% of 
50-50% of the black doctors in Mississippi graduated from Tougaloo College. So why were there no African-American teachers in the science department? This really struck me as wrong, and it became this itch in the back of my head. And it made me wonder, how would my experience at Tougaloo change if I had African-American professors? And what would happen if I got my PhD and came back and taught at Tougaloo? I don't know, does representation matter? In, in college, I became a Mark Scholar, so it's minority access to research careers. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to do research, to go to Johns Hopkins and go to NIH in the summer to do research. And I fell in love with science. It was so pure and honest and in my mind at this time. Um, and I was just making discoveries and people were coming to me and asking me stuff and I was pushing boundaries. That was gonna change the world. And it was amazing and I loved it. Um, and through this scholarship, they had national conferences. So we got to go get in the airplane and go to these like really expensive hotels and stay there. And you know, we ordered room service. And you know, I was thinking I was a big deal. I remember going to Chicago and they had a phone in the bathroom, and I was like, ah! I made it, and it just, you know, it was just so great to be around all of these black science nerds from all over, um, not just in Mississippi, from all over. I just found my people. Um, I met Kendrick Spirits, my best friends, Charlie and Laura. We are all like, let's get this PhD and change the world, and it was just amazing. And so then I decided to go to get my PhD. So then I applied to all of these schools and I went, application process was horrible, but I interviewed all over the country and finally I ended up at NYU. And I ended up at NYU because I didn't feel like the minority, you know? I felt like the minorities there were people who were born in the United States. And I was so excited. I wanted to dive into that diversity, the things I had never had in Mississippi. I was like, I was ready. So when we get to orientation, I meet with everybody, and they gave us this really beautiful book with all of these professors I could work with, and I'm ready to go. And there's 200 professors in this book. So I go home and I'm just looking, I'm going through, I'm deciding, I'm putting my, my little post-its, yeah, I want this guy, I want this guy, I'm gonna go to this guy. And then after I get to the last page of these 200 professors, none of them are African-American. So, does representation matter?
during my graduate career, um, I was really, I noticed like, I, I just felt like there needed to be more African-American people in graduate school. So I started recruiting. I went back to the MARC conferences, got people to come to NYU, went to HBCUs, started getting people to come to NYU. Then I realized I wasn't really increasing the number of people who were going to graduate school. It's just that I was taking those limited numbers and concentrating them at NYU. And I wanted to do something more. So I realized I needed to go to the K-12 space to do that. And so I started volunteering. And I loved it. It was great. But at the end of my, oops, sorry. <laughs> got it, got it. So at the end of my career, um, sorry, after I graduated, I continued on in academia, even though I could never see myself as a professor. But the weights of all of my accomplishments were kind of on my shoulders. I felt like if I have endured all of this and been through so much to graduate, to give it up, it's kind of irresponsible. Because at that time, only 5% of the PhDs that graduated were African-American. And I was thinking, am I going to do a disservice to that student that needs a black professor, that needs to commiserate? So I needed to stay in. I don't know. Does representation matter? After college, four years of college, five years of grad school, five years of postdoc, I decided I didn't want to live myself as a placeholder of the African-American PhD. I wanted to live my life for myself. And I wanted to do something that I felt was impactful, something that I cared about. I didn't want to think about disappointing this person that I never met, because I was actively disappointing myself. So I had to stop. And I had to say, this is enough. And I have to change. And for then, leaving academia was some of the hardest things I ever did. You know? Um, so not only did I leave academia, but I started working on a 1975 transit bus with some hippies. <laughs> so you can imagine how that conversation with my parents went. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of, what's happening? <laughs> what do you say? You talk to her. <laughs> and I talk, after talking to mom, oh, my dad, my cousins, my five brothers, 
they all just threw up their hands and said, okay, you live in New York, that must have been the problem. You went, <laughs> you became a Yankee, I don't know what happened. So, okay. But I really had to be true to myself. So I have to ask myself, does representation really matter? So that was 15 years ago. And as I work on the bio bus, I can't tell you how many times little kids have come up to me and said, you're a scientist? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a scientist. And they're like, okay. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, you know, you can be one too. And they're like, I don't know, miss. And I'm like, yeah, you can. And then they're like, okay, maybe, I don't know. But I'm able to plant that seed to the next generation. Like, you don't have to be what everybody thinks you should be. You can be what you want to be. And... I am amazed by my students. Um, they have reignited my love for science. They've shown me the beauty of looking at a cauliflower under the microscope, or what's all of the life in a droplet of water. And they're always questioning. They're always pushing me to know more. And I feel like I'm learning from them much more than they're learning from me. And it's been an amazing journey. So far, we've had like 300,000 kids come on our Morville Labs. I have my favorites. Um, not so, don't let anybody know that I have favorites. <laughs> but they, you know, I'm just seeing them flourish. And they're all like, you know, Ben and I, who's the other founder of Biobus, we all say, oh, Biobus is our platonic baby that we've had together. <laughs> and it, we just love it, and it's great. And I just am inspired so much for the kids, by the kids who live in New York City, especially in COVID. Like, they had to really just overcome so much, more, more than we had to deal with. And they still are ready to go out and change the world for the better. Um, and I'm just happy that I can be an ally for them, that I can be a role model. But you know, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, I'm a role model for them on this path that I'm taking, but I'm not really sure where I'm going, but I'm still trying to make an impact and change the world in my own way. So I'm not sure, does representation really matter? So. I just want to tell you how I feel like representation matters in my daily life right now. Um, I'm one of the executives of this amazing organization that I love, that I care about, I believe in, and 
I really feel like I'm surrounded with wonderful people who are well-intentioned. And we've done an equity study at our, you know, our organization, and 50% of the people who work at Biobus identify as people of color, but the majority of the leadership identify as white. And sometimes I find myself in meetings where I'm presenting an idea or a new strategy, and someone will say, you know, what Latasha is really trying to say is, or something to that effect. And that used to make me so mad. But I never would show my anger. As a black woman, I'm always worried about coming across as the angry black woman. So when I get angry, I think about it later and I'm like, was that rational? Is it irrational? Okay, if it's rational, then why is it making me so mad? And then I kept thinking about this for months. And I was thinking, is it my ego? Is it that I don't like to share power? Is it that I need to be more collaborative? What is it? Why is it that this makes me so angry? And then one day it hit me. is that to really understand what I'm saying, it has to be reset by a white person. You know what I mean? was Latasha Wright. Latasha received her PhD from NYU Langone Medical Center in Cell and Molecular Biology and continued her scientific training at Johns Hopkins University and Weill Cornell Medical Center. She has co-authored numerous publications, presented her work at international and national conferences. She has co-authored numerous publications and presented her work at international and national conferences. She is the chief science officer of a wonderful organization called Biobus, which enables her to share her love of science with a new generation of scientists. Latasha spearheaded the creation of the first bio-based community lab, the Biobus internship program, and their Harlem expansion. She is also the newest member of the Story Collider's board of directors. Latasha has appeared on our podcast already several times, and you can find those stories at storycollider.org. Before we continue today, just a few updates from Story Collider. Due to Omicron, we aren't scheduling any in-person shows until it's warm enough for us to hold them in outdoor spaces, but we do have a few online shows coming up in the winter months. Coming up on February 8th, we'll be live streaming from St. Louis in partnership with St. Louis Public Radio. And just a day later on February 9th, we'll be live streaming stories from New York City. I will be co-hosting with our brand new producer, Tracy Segarra, so I would love to see you there virtually. Find out more at storycollider.org shows. We'll also be holding our Winter Story Slam on February 18th if you'd like to tune in and possibly put your own name in the hat for a chance to be invited on screen to share your story. Tickets for our slams are $10, and we often send out discount codes to our newsletter subscribers. Again, find out more at storycollider.org. 
And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We are also, for the first time ever, selling merch on our website, so if you would like to buy a Story Collider hoodie, t-shirt, tote bag, you can find those at storycollider.org store. Your purchases help to support Story Collider's work. We're so grateful to everyone who helps to make this podcast possible. Our second story today is from Leah Clyburn. It was recorded last October at an outdoor show in partnership with St. Louis Public Radio. The theme that night was metamorphosis. So growing up, I was my grandmother's travel partner. And this wasn't the typical hold the bag, hold the purse type of situation. See, this is my mother's mother. And my family on my mother's side is from Jamaica. So that meant every other year, I got to join my partner down in Jamaica, especially during Emancipation Week. Or for, for us here, we call it like Independence Day. And it was on one of these trips when I finally realized how much I loved the environment. See, during one of these specific trips, it was the summer that I think I was probably like nine years old because it was, I was about to start school, right? First grade. And the night was clear. The moon was out. The stars were bright and they were all over. You can look to your left and they were there. You can look up, they were there. You can look to your left, your right, without even like totally moving your head. And it was still there. It was so encapsulating. It was like a dome. And I was standing at the edge of the beach. You know that part where as the water rolls in, it just kisses the tips of your toes? And then on my back was this huge bonfire, but it was so warm. And the crackles mixed with the inter um, rhythms and vibes from classic Caribbean beats while clearly it was my grandma and some other her friends back there just laughing. And in that moment, I was like, this is it. That if I can find this, no matter where I'm at, I'll be at peace. Because this moment, I was a part of something. But I wasn't too big, and I wasn't too small. But I mattered. And I was a part of something bigger. I felt connected. So that winter, we were doing the same thing that children do, is you prepare for lineup. Right? So first grade got out before everybody else because we had to make sure that we were ready to go onto our school bus. And there's times where children have the tendency to get on the wrong school bus. And so I was all set, right? And I went to bus 103. I found my buddy. My buddy's my neighbor. She lived down the street. So I knew my buddy and we stood in line. I was set. 
and I had my bag. Now my mom was all about school is work, work is school. So I had I had this crossbody blue um, briefcase with the sun, with the rainbow and the sunshine on the side. So I was all set. I had all my stuff ready to go. And then I felt a, a tug at my shirt, pulling me out of line. And that was my principal. And she had like this this whole like Coella Deville type um, lingering type energy in her, right? And no matter what I told her or my buddy, who was also my neighbor, told her, we couldn't, we couldn't win. She didn't believe that I belonged on the bus heading towards the county. And as she continued to tell me how I was getting on the wrong bus and how much of a hassle it was, she continued to let me know that she was going to call my mom and I was going to face expulsion. I'm in first grade. <laughs> Are you going to call my mom? That's it, <laughs> right? So she takes me to back into the school, and I'm sitting there. And, you know, these chairs at the, at the principal's office are always nicely directed. So they can still keep an eye on you. And you can watch them doing that thing, like dialing your mom's number as you sit there contemplating what just happened. And that's what hap was happening to me. And I was trying to figure out because I was so mad. I was like, wait, I did everything. I had the... I had the whole plan planned out, right? I found my buddy. I knew where she was. Bus 103, I stood there. I had my bag. I had all my things. I was ready to go. I did everything that we practiced. And yet I'm still in trouble. So after I watched, while watching her dial my mom's number, I just contemplated on the potential outcomes of the situation I was going to land with. And I knew I was going to be in trouble, so much trouble. And after she hung up the phone while maintaining eye contact, I kind of, I think I broke eye contact. You know, it was a, a very intense. So I'm just trying to see what's happening. And you know, that sixth sense you have when, you're, when your mom is close to you or if they're close to you and they're mad, it's just like this permeating energy, right? And my mom, my mom is everything to me. I mean, she is bigger than life itself. And the idea that not only does she have to now come up to school, but now threaten to take me home, which is not a part of the plan. And so she comes. And I'm sure my mom gave me one of those looks like, what did you do? Why am I here? But all I do really remember very clearly is that she came in. I didn't join them in that office, but the door closed behind her. And as my mom left from that office, I continued to contemplate, and I was still continuing to contemplate, like, I'm going to be in so much trouble. I did everything, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Her hand reached out to me. And in that moment, I knew that it was not me. I was not in trouble. I knew something happened. Something was going to happen, but it wasn't me. And at that, I was tall. I was as tall as she was. And we left and got in our car and journeyed home. Now, my mom also is one of those people that is good to always come with a lesson. There's always a lesson, so that means there's a speech. And so in this speech was something probably around the lines of, don't let no one take advantage of you. And so you go tell everybody, you go find somebody, you go find your brother, you go find your teacher, you go find some other teacher, if that teacher don't wanna listen to you, you go find the principal, you go find the other principal, you go find the nurse, you go find somebody, find somebody. Because if you find somebody, then somebody is going to help you. So I 
Took that. Check. Got it. Find somebody. Everybody. Somebody's going to help me. And, you know, after mom's speeches, there's always comes a call with my grandma. Now, my grandma was also my best friend, right? So I'm sure that conversation was more in depth of all the feels. And, but this conversation didn't really focus on my feels. She, she had her own directives for me too. And they went like this. One, that I am no longer able to become friends with anybody who doesn't know where they came from. Okay. And then the second one was that no matter what, it is my job to teach any and everyone who I am instead of who they believe me to be. Now, these are the smartest women I know. So, of course, I took it to heart. I had it in my gut. I'm like, right, I'm going to figure this out. Make all this work. Because if they said it, then I must be able to do it. But the thing of it is, later on, during that cycle of my life, I started getting more directives that seemed like um, instructions or guidances, but it was more like limits. Like if I wanted to go to the park or go to a friend's house, I had to bring my brother. If I wanted to go with friends to the park, I had, I had to bring not my brother, but also some adults. If I wanted to later start visiting public parks, the bigger ones, you know, like way out there in, in you know, no man's land, Missouri, I had to be a part of a church group. I had to be a part of a school. And if I wanted to like go camping, <laughs> well, you don't do that without a guide or, or your friends and their family. See, there was always a limit. There was always something in my way from being and getting to that point of being back at that beach. And I, I got pissed. <laughs> and people who know me know that when I get mad, I go figure everything out. <laughs> Because these limits were nothing but interwoven blankets of safety, but really every little trinket, tr um, intrinsic thread was in inwoven with misogyny and bigotry. And I had to go tell somebody. So that was the beginning of long conversations that I'm sure my mom had to continuously have with some kind of teacher somewhere. Let her tell it that in third grade, I, could, I performed a sit-in. And in this sit-in was because a teacher wanted to treat another young lady who looked like me poorly, and I decided that that was not okay. So therefore, I decided not to talk to anybody. And that meant that that teacher had to be coached by my mother to understand the social constructs of the situation and, under her, and, and know what to do about it. But that was supported not just by my, my mother about going out and speaking up for, for what's right, but also by the church that I grew up in because we stood in solidarity. We stood for the people who was pushed on the margins by society alone because those are my brothers and sisters. And frankly, if you're going to hold them to the side, then you're holding me to the side too. So together, we don't have to stand by ourselves. And then as I grew older... I started doing some more activist work that rooted myself in every issue that addressed me and my neighbor. So, you know, I started in, in reproductive justice and moved that on into um, uh, school to prison pipeline to even immigration. 
and then later into policy work. And each one of those had beautiful pieces and gems that I got to inherit. Each one of those, I gained and enlarged my family of nothing but people all across this wonderful state and even this country. But there was still something missing. And so after we won the, the ballot initiative for democracy reform all across Missouri at the polls and later lost it in Jefferson City, that's a whole other conversation, um, I, was, I was confronted by uh, the, this um, local environmental organization here. And this manager came to me from the environmental organization and offered me an opportunity to work with them. She informed me that her colleagues had worked with me during this last campaign and thought I would be a great um, attribute to their mission. <laughs> now I was taken back for many reasons, but I, was, I took my time and said, let's talk later. And so we scheduled some time to be at this coffee house. So we get to this coffee house. And I had all kinds of questions to ask her at that moment. But I took my time once again, and as she started opening up the conversation of all the pleasantries, and we um, discussed about the role and what would expect from me, I started just more and more questions started coming to forefront. And then her question to me, before she can get the full sentence of, so what do you think? I was like, aren't y'all a bunch of people who, th who are, are white, who go out in the woods hugging trees? Do you know what I do? I spend all majority of my career around social justice issues. I mean, I, you see me, right? I, I, I'm not as resilient as I used to be. I don't know, how is this even going to work? Now she could have ran, but instead she stayed and educated me about the organization's commitment to what we call the Hermes principles. And just for, understanding. The Hermes Principles is a background of information that was compiled with um, environmental leaders all across the United States to get a clear understanding that we are going to confront our own internal biases that we have while root leadership and understanding by the people who are highly impacted by the um, unlawful protection of our environment. I was like, all right, this check, grandma's Number one rule. All right, great. I, I, I got half of that job already done. And then we continued to have more conversations. It was almost like a courtship that was happening. But as time progressed and I got to talk with my soon-come colleagues, I thought this job was a no-brainer. And there were specific three things that really just nailed it for me. One was that she committed, my manager committed, that if the ugly green-eyed monster of racism would show its head, that she would take care of it. Perfect. Second was that my colleagues also said the same thing, and they acknowledged that racism does exist. It is an issue within the movement, but they too are committed in, in confronting it as well as shutting down the green-eyed monster. And then the third was the pay. No, so the third, <laughs> the third was actually the connection that middle class to poor white um, members of the community were being affected by pollution, was being gaslighted by, by legislators just the same way 
as middle class to poor African American to uh, indigenous and other people of color were in Missouri. I was like, those are my people. I mean, that's literally the community that I grew up in while also I identified with. I know this conversation. I know these people. So I took my time. I lifted up my grandmother's theory of change. I focused in on really connecting each person, not just to the issue, but also to themselves, and then encourage the curiosity of the neighbor around them, someone they didn't even know. And together we combined our stories, our love for the environment, our love for people, our love for existence, while also acknowledging the bigotry and the, the denial of the needs of not just our environment, but the biodiversity in which we all make up. One of my most memorable events uh, is called Air We Breathe. And this is an event where we get to gather with people from all ends of Missouri to talk about not just the pollution that is perpetuated by the super polluter here in Missouri, as well as lax laws that keep allowing it to keep happening, but we also got to celebrate the resilience of humanity that still can exist in each one of us. And so we got to see each other. We got to laugh with one another. We displayed our art. We sang songs. We ate amazing food. But we also committed that we were no longer going to sit on the sidelines. Like Each one of us, man, woman, child, they, them, all representations was going to do better, step forward, and speak out. And so when the last statement of gratitude from the last participant um, was, was given as they enter out, and I could hear the background of all my colleagues laughing, joking with volunteers and our local partners as well as they were packing things up, I was transformed once again to that moment on the beach. And in that moment, I felt like I was a part of something greater. I felt connected. So, yeah, it's not perfect. And we're definitely not where we want to be. But in there, there's hope. And in hope, there's peace. And I'm okay with that. Leah Clyburn. Leah has been organizing in Missouri for almost 10 years now, starting in reproductive justice through a faithful lens to school-to-prison pipeline and statewide policy initiatives, and now on to environmental justice and climate change. She believes that a call-out is an invitation to be called in to authentic and transformational relationships in order to obtain environmental justice for all. The Story Collider is so grateful to Latasha and Leah for sharing their stories with us, the Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, Program Manager, Misha Gajewski, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. 
Special thanks goes out to StoryQuetter's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg and by Charlie Blake and Sam Lyons, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back next week with more live recorded stories. Until then, thanks for listening.